morning is from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 6. It can be found on page 1706 in the large print Bibles, or 1069 in the Bibles in the chairs. So John 6, starting from verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, you guys. So, this morning I'm going to speak on the only miracle except for the resurrection, that appears in all four Gospels. I'm predominantly going to be speaking from John 6, a chapter which is dominated by the theme of Passover, or rather one aspect of it, the fact that God fed the children of Israel during their time in the wilderness with bread from heaven. This is the story of Jesus' own provision of bread from heaven, for a large crowd out in the wilderness near the Sea of Galilee, away from the towns where the food might be found. Although I will focus on this story in John, I will also be using the other Gospels too in order to paint the full picture. But before we look at the passage itself, I thought it would be good to sort of set the scene. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place at this time of the year, early spring, when everything is coming into bloom. And that's what it looks like. The grass is green in Galilee for this short season, 
But that won't last long, because once the rains have stopped, it will be scorched by the fierce sun. And it's the run-up to Passover, a time when many would be traveling to Jerusalem to commemorate their liberation from slavery in Egypt. This festival is known as Passover as it celebrates the time when, although the Egyptian firstborn were killed, Israel's children were spared because their homes were marked with the blood of a sacrificial lamb and therefore death passed over. It is worth noting at this point that in a year's time, Jesus will eat a Passover meal with his disciples, his last supper. And the ultimate sacrificial lamb will give up his life in order to set God's people free. At the beginning of this passage, we see Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has spent the morning teaching and healing people. And so many people turn out to see him that neither he nor the disciples have had a chance to stop and eat. And when this was going on, somebody sidled up to Jesus to let him know that his cousin, John the Baptist, who had been imprisoned by Herod, by Herod had been beheaded and that John's head had been presented on a platter to Herodias' daughter as a gift. Exhausted, hungry, and full of grief, Jesus and his disciples withdrew by boat, hoping to escape somewhere private where they can have an opportunity to recuperate and regroup. It must have been clear to Jesus that the net was closing in, that on his time on earth is limited, and that, they need to, and that he needs to hand over his responsibilities to his disciples as soon as possible. For his intention has been from the start to train and equip his disciples so they can continue on the mission to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven once he has gone. But are they ready? And this is where we join them. Having crossed the lake, Jesus and the disciples climb up the hills overlooking the lake and sit down to enjoy the peace. What a serene spot. What a view. Doesn't that look beautiful? But this interlude is short-lived. We read in verse 5, when Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him. Now, I don't know about you, but if that had been me, if I was exhausted, hungry, and grieving the loss of a loved one, if I'd just rowed across the whole of the Sea of Galilee in the heat of the day in order to escape the crowds, I would not have been in the right frame of mind to minister to anybody. If I'd looked up to see thousands of people heading my way in those circumstances, I would undoubtedly have been full of emotions, but I can say with certainty that my emotions would not have reflected those that Jesus demonstrated. From Mark's version of this event, we know that when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. A sentence which is reminiscent of a prophecy in Jeremiah's 23rd chapter. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. 
It is you who have scattered my flock and who have driven them away. And you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doing, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the lands where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them. And they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed. Nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and God's overflowing love is flowing out to all those before him. God's love which is forever reaching out to serve and bless others. So Jesus knows that the people who have followed him have done so because they need a good shepherd. He knows that they're longing for a time when it will, there will be peace in their land and freedom once again. And he knows they're desperately seeking the one the prophets have foretold, who, like Moses before them, would free God's people from their oppressors. And he understands that having seen the miraculous signs and wonders that he's been performing earlier in the day, those gathered before him now are trying to work out if he is their long-awaited Messiah or not. These people, like Jesus and his disciples, are also hungry, but they have forfeited their desire for physical food because their spiritual hunger is even greater. We know that Jesus is certainly tired, hungry, and grieving, but he knows that this congregation needs his help. And he is also acutely aware that his remaining time on earth is limited and that he urgently needs both the crowd and the disciples to understand who he truly is. So he asked Philip this question. Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Now we need to understand at this point that the question that Jesus is asking them is palpably ridiculous. We know that there are 5,000 men on that mountain and we also know that women and children are present too. That means at a conservative estimate, there are 10,000 people who need feeding. 10,000 people. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to imagine what 10,000 people look like. So the, this image is one of 10,000 people dressed up as Santa, so as to give you some kind of an idea. Now, I'd like you to imagine for a moment the following scenario. 10,000 people decide all at once to pop into Waitrose next door to get their lunch. Everybody arrives at the same time. How well do you think that shop would cope? Well, the crowds surrounding Jesus are in the middle of nowhere. There are only a few small villages surrounding this isolated spot. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to work out that if a huge supermarket like Waitrose would be overwhelmed by this crowd, the local villages would be swamped. And even if the disciples did manage to get hold of enough money to feed so many mouths, there's no way they would be able to source so much food locally. When Jesus asks this question, he knows full well that popping down to the nearest market isn't the answer. He isn't asking the question with a view to getting them to source some food. 
He is asking this question in order to find out how close they have got to answering the question that is on everybody's lips. Who is this man? If Philip and the disciples understand who, he is, who it is that is asking them, then they will know that nothing's impossible for him. To quote Matthew 19:26, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Philip's response, where are we to buy food for these people to eat, shows that he has no clue who he is standing next to. It must have been a disappointing moment for Jesus. Andrew, though, shows a bit more promise. He points out that there is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. This is peasant food. Barley loaves are the ordinary black bread, usually in the shape of small flat disks. These loaves would have been the choice of the poorest as they cost a third of the price of normal wheat loaves. The two fish he has are called osparian, which means they were likely to be small fish the size of sardines. And these fish would either have been dried or pickled, as otherwise taking them for a picnic on a very hot day would more than likely end badly. All that to say, this is his small pack lunch. It's enough to feed one small boy and not a multitude. But when asked, the boy willingly offers up what he has the nutritional equivalent of a widow's mite. The boy may feel that his meager offering is inadequate, but it isn't for Jesus. Jesus looks up to heaven and gives thanks before blessing and distributing the bread because he wants those watching to know that the gift they're about to receive is a gift from God, an overflow of his love for them. And this scene foreshadows an event that will be played out a year later at the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Once everybody has eaten as much as they want, Jesus asks the disciples to gather up the leftovers so that nothing is lost. And 12 baskets are filled with the fragments from the original five little barley loaves. By feeding the hungry with bread in a place where food could not be found, Jesus is subtly but deliberately answering their much-discussed question about his identity. His actions echo what God did in Exodus while the people were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. God sent bread from heaven to feed the hungry thousands. This event must have been in the forefront of everybody's minds as it is remembered in the Passover season, the season they are now in. So it's hard to see how the correlation between the two events could be missed. And we learn later in this chapter that the very next day when the crowns come looking for him yet again, Jesus explains, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life 
So they said to him, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And I believe this shows that they clearly made the connection with the um, Exodus event during the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down for heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So when Jesus feeds the crowds before him, he isn't focusing on their physical needs, but on their much greater spiritual hunger. He intends this miracle of multiplication to point them to the answer to their spiritual hunger hunger for a savior, to himself. And when the people see the miraculous sign that Jesus has performed, they believe that their question has been satisfactorily answered. They understand that Jesus is the one who's come to set them free. However, what they do not understand is that he has not come to set them free from what they believe is their greatest need, freedom from their Roman oppressors. But he's come to set them free from their far greater enemies of sin and death. And as a result of this misunderstanding, Mark tells us that the crowd intend to take Jesus by force to make him king and thus ensure the imminent fulfillment of the prophecies. It's clear at this point that neither the crowd nor the disciples have really understood who Jesus is. But he's taken them as far as he can at this point in time, having fed them both physically and spiritually and knowing what they are thinking. Jesus withdraws again to the mountain to be by himself. From the moment Jesus begins his ministry, his life demands an answer to the question, who do you say I am? Every time he heals the sick, casts out demon, forgives sinners, walks on water, calms the storm, raises the dead, or indeed feeds 5,000 people, He makes a statement loud and clear, but can anybody hear it? As I look back over this passage and I imagine myself amongst that crowd, I can't help but think that I would have come to the same conclusion as them, that Jesus was the Messiah, an anointed man who'd come to sort out my life on earth. In spite of his clear demonstration, I'm sure that I would have understood I'm not sure that I would have understood that he is my Lord and God. And today, although many years have passed, Jesus still challenges each of us to answer the same question. Who do you say I am? It's the question I first wrestled when I went along to my Alpha course those many years ago. Do you believe he's a fictional character, a liar, a lunatic, or your Lord and God? And I also believe it's a question I need to keep asking myself. Because I'm ashamed to say, from time to time, I fall into the trap of believing, as those who encountered Jesus face to face did, that Jesus is the savior of my worldly problems, not my future destiny. I forget that there is a much bigger picture. 
that he's come to give me an eternally godly perspective, to give my life on earth meaning and purpose, and to bring me freedom, not from my earthly problems, but from my ultimate enemies of sin and death. As I read this very familiar passage once again, I recognize that there are times when I get so caught up in my own problems here on earth that when I lift Jesus up, I do so as the one who can fix all. I begin to believe that he is here to serve me and not me to serve him. And I forget that as a direct result of the cross, I have been given the ultimate gift, the gift of eternal life in his presence, in the presence of the one who loves me, the one who looks at me and sees my potential and not my faults, the one who loves me so much that he gave his very life. And I lose my eternal perspective, forgetting that when my time in this world is done, I will enter God's kingdom, and that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor, nor human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. My greatest hope for myself and in fact for all of us, is that we would know every day that he is our God and King, that he made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, that his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet, he chose to make himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross so that we might be saved. And my hope is that every day we would understand that his greatness is unfathomable and that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And I pray that from the moment we wake up to the time when we go to sleep, we would bless his name and serve him wholeheartedly, not only because he is worthy of all our praise, but because that is how we discover how we get life in all its fullness.